Welcome to Marketing Demystified, the podcast that connects the dots for business leaders to drive revenue through effective marketing strategy. We chat with marketing experts on different topics that will help you ramp up your revenue. We stream live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platforms. Marketing Demystified, the podcast, is presented to you by Growgetter, your partner in growth marketing. And here's today's episode. Ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered with actionable tips to transform your marketing game? You're in the right place. Welcome to Marketing Demystified. I'm your host, Jen Mancusi, CEO and co-founder of Growgetter, your growth marketing partner. Now, the road to growth uh, are plenty. There's lots of different ways that you can drive growth, which leads us to think about measurement and even auditing whether or not things that we're putting in place are working and where improvements might be necessary. So to discuss this topic, I'm excited to be joined by Asia Arangio, a SaaS growth analyst, speaker, and previously a board member at Moz. She's currently CEO and founder at Demand Maven. So I'm really excited to hear her thoughts and tips on this topic. Welcome to the show, Asia. Thank you so much. Super pumped to be here. And the intro was such a vibe. I loved it. So glad. I'm so glad. We try to have a little bit of fun with, uh, you know, growth marketing and measurement and auditing and all that fun stuff. So <laughs> hopefully everybody's vibing with us listening in today. Um, thanks for joining in. Um, let's kick it off. Let's get started. What are what are the most important marketing metrics that you're thinking about tracking when evaluating the health of a SaaS company's growth? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for context, typically whenever I'm working with a SaaS company, uh, there's there's really there's really two areas that we're looking at. The first is, uh, are we troubleshooting growth? And if that's the case, then what specifically are we looking to troubleshoot? Is it that there are certain conversion rates that aren't necessarily performing as well as they could be? Is it that um, the team is maybe not clear on who the ICP is or who the right target market is? Um, are we dealing or struggling with monetization or retention or activation issues? And then the flip side of this is finding growth opportunities. And that's everything seems to be going well, but where could things maybe be improved? And this is where uh, usually whenever I'm coming and I'm, I'm analyzing something or I'm analyzing the business, uh, I'm, I'm really like I'm weighing both of these at all times. And so when it comes to marketing, there's, there's really, again, there's, there's the two aspects of what's already working, what's working well, what seems to be uh, what seems to be already going well, but maybe there are some different aspects of our performance that we could see better performance on. And then the flip side, what isn't working as well? So let's troubleshoot. Uh, and every SaaS company, I would say there's patterns for sure, especially when it comes to like if you're product led versus maybe sales led. Uh, there's different KPIs, like specific numbers that we're going to look at depending on. Um, if you are product-led versus sales-led or, or whatever your ultimate go-to-market strategy is going to be. So I would say the specific numbers or specific things I'm looking for um, do vary across the company. But generally speaking, there's a few buckets I look at. The first is uh, I'm looking at overall conversion rates in general. So this is how, how do people, how do ideal customers move through the funnel? Uh, and of course, I think, you know, if you're, if you're experienced in marketing, you, you already likely know that marketing is, um, it's not this like perfectly linear funnel. 
it is you know customers and prospects they come in and out of the the funnel and they go back and forth between stages all the time but generally speaking we want to just get the bird's eye view of how are things performing from a funnel basis so what i'm typically looking for is uh if if we are primarily inbound led for example what does traffic to um, MQL to trial, or maybe it's traffic to trial to paying customer. So what does that very high level um, performance look like across the board? And then from there, I'm, I'm also digging in even deeper. There's conversion rates according to specific channels. There's conversion rates according to specific segments or um, desired outcomes or certain like personas or personality types or like whatever it is. There's, and also too, this this really depends on the level of sophistication that the marketing department has. So if we find that marketing is really only reporting like on so many things, um, that's great. So part of my job is to identify, okay, like, well, what else could we be re uh, reporting on to ultimately impact growth in a positive way? Uh, but there's also, there's apart from conversion rates and like just getting a general sense of like, how does the funnel actually perform? There is also how do certain cohorts perform of certain customer types? So for example, if you notice that you're getting a lot of customers who sign up with a specific intent, or if you're looking at um, specifically qualified leads versus maybe non-qualified leads, how do those cohorts perform over time? This is also especially true too, if you've decided to execute a particular marketing practice, and you want to see, okay, so we we just kicked off our demand generation um, practice. Mm -hmm. How do the leads that we've acquired from specifically our demand gen efforts, how do those perform compared to maybe ones that we gained from other means? And then I think the last thing I look at are parts of the whole. Um, I mean, of course there's costs and there's things like, uh, there's things like, how what was what was the ultimate cost of acquiring this type of customer versus the other but i feel like that's that's pretty common i feel like most marketers generally have a good sense of this um but i'm also looking at what are what are the parts of the whole what, and what that means is what percentage of the leads that we generated were actually qualified what percentage of the leads that we generated took specific product actions that then led to a purchase or what percentage of of qualified leads did sales ultimately accept uh, so I'm looking for like, what is the part of the ultimate whole? And that tells me a lot about uh, what potential opportunities we have to grow in that way. So for example, if we find that we're really not generating as many qualified leads as we like, but traffic is growing and, um, you know, organic search and SEO efforts are uh, seem to be paying off, but our qualified leads aren't necessarily growing and revenue isn't growing. That tells me that there's a gap. Uh, and so those are the types of things I'm looking at. I would say there's not any one specific thing for every company, there's the high level stuff like, yes, like, let's look at traffic, let's look at leads, let's look at costs. But then there's also within your specific context for your business uh, and how your department works with all the other departments, what what are the conversion rates, the parts of the whole and how do the cohorts look? That's typically what I'm coming in and digging into. Yeah, it's and being able to look at like dig in and look at all of that stuff together tends to tell like such an uh, like such a meaningful story beyond what people like gravitate towards, I guess. I don't know why that is. Like, I don't know if you've seen this in your, your experience too, but I think actually one of the most interesting things you just said is like looking at what people are not currently measuring because you're right. Like oftentimes we're looking at how many MQLs are driving and you know, more, more leads at a lower cost, right? Which isn't always going to filtered through the funnel, or they might be measuring CAC really accurately, but actually, you know, your business could tolerate a higher CAC if there's some few other metrics you just take it a little bit further. So, I mean, how do you, um, 
because it's so different for each business, like what the metrics are that actually matter, like how do you recommend somebody internally kind of thinking about, you know, looking for those metrics that they maybe didn't know they needed to track? Yeah. So this is this is where I highly encourage, no matter where you are in the company, it doesn't matter if you're a higher level marketing, lower level marketing, you know, maybe you're an individual contributor, it doesn't matter like, it uh, doesn't matter like what uh, I think like level you're at in marketing. It's imperative that you understand how does the business actually grow and how does it make money? And what I mean by that is, do you understand the model that your business is currently operating uh, under? And also, what are the leading indicators of success and growth within the current business model? So for example, if you notice that um, it, it seems like the best paying customers look like this, take these actions in the product, and also, um, sure, they may come from specific channels, but but let's dig even deeper into that. So what are some of the leading indicators that may indicate that they either will become a paying customer or they're going to stick around for a long time, pay more, expand, et cetera? Uh, and also, too, really understanding your business's model, because you might find that the business grows more when you acquire more companies with more seats, um, maybe versus maybe you've just got like a flat rate. Uh, monthly price where it doesn't necessarily expand or, or anything if you acquire a company with, you know, tons of seats versus not. Um, so understanding like what are the levers upon which the business model actually impacts growth, because that could actually tell you, hmm, like maybe we should try to acquire more accounts maybe that are larger because of our pricing model and the way that it's structured um, versus uh, maybe actually growth looks like acquiring more uh, uh, SMBs or whatever it is or consumers or whatever your target audience is. Uh, but no matter where you're at in the org, if you understand how the business actually grows, like from like a revenue perspective, and also you can start to see like, okay, well, what are the leading indicators into that? then that will 100% influence how you think about your work, no matter what it is that you're doing. doesn't matter if you're a copywriter, if you're running ads, if you're head of demand gen, or if you're, uh, if, if you're, if you're a designer even. If you have that clarity, it's, it's going to help impact a lot about how you think about um, not only providing value to the business, but also providing value to the customer, which is the ultimate goal, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how, I, that's how I think about it. And it might seem really daunting, but I think I think that there are probably people in your org that you can tap to kind of help explain it um, if if you're feeling stuck or if you're feeling lost. But uh, honestly, all it takes is for me to go to the pricing page on any SaaS website, and I can usually uh, decipher like, oh, okay, so if you get a company that looks like this, that's a very large plan for you. Or if you get a company that looks like this, um, that's maybe not as much. Or if a company does, you know, these things, like these are the growth levers in the business. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's not to say that it's right. Some, a lot of companies don't have great monetization or pricing strategies, but what's important is that you understand, okay, what does that actually look like? And if we want to see growth, how do we impact it with what, we, like with what we're currently operating in? Yeah, that's such great advice too, because it, even just that like sort of thinking beyond your own individual day-to-day will really help you be better at your job as an individual, regardless of how senior you are in the org or whatever. Like that's such great advice. And and also just kind of lends itself to people that are maybe a little bit more curious and want to kind of understand this sort of thing. And going back to what you're saying about the cohort analysis, like you might not know which cohorts you even need to analyze, but just a little bit of curiosity and kind of looking at like how could we slice this? Maybe there's mo no difference between cohorts, but that that mindset of like, let me see see what I, if I can uncover something that's actually going to make a meaningful meaningful difference. 
is a, is just a great place to be in and will only help you as an individual in your career. Totally. I I find some of the best marketers that I've ever worked with are the ones who absolutely love context. To them, context is really what is king because within certain contexts, they, they can make better decisions, prioritize specific things, um, and ultimately achieve their goals in ways that they might not have had if they hadn't have had the context. Context gives us focus. And I think that that's really part of the secret sauce. Um, and I love what you said about curiosity. Yes. Uh, the, some of some of the best marketers that I work with are also very curious. They, um, they, they don't have very large egos around what they think that they know. They are constantly uh, they are constantly searching and unearthing new information and new insight because of their curiosity. Um, but yes, I, I totally agree. Awesome. And now what are, what are some of the, so now that we've kind of done a little bit of analysis and maybe we understand what metrics we need to be focused on and improving, what are some of the ways for companies to optimize their marketing efforts to maximize growth? Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting. I, there's there's so many thoughts around this. And at the same exact time, um, because a lot of my work is centered around overarching business growth, so not just marketing, but uh, mm-hmm. growth in product, growth by go-to-market, growth by strategy. Like there's, there's many different aspects of overall business growth and marketing is one component, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my growth brain says, yes, let's optimize marketing, but let's not forget that the real true uh, like aggressive growth drivers in the business are going to be around product and around uh, monetization, pricing, and revenue. And um, yes, like marketing is uh, obviously a huge uh, component of this. Um, but there's actually a study done by Price Intelligently slash ProfitWell. And um, what they found was improving improving acquisition by 1% maybe gave you a 3% return, but improving uh, pricing, monetization, even retention by one percent gave you like six to twelve percent return back. Um, wow. So I think it was like it was like some crazy like three to six, like three to four x um, greater return if you were to focus on retention and monetization, which was kind of mind blowing for a lot of people at the time because I think even to this day we're still very much obsessed with acquisition. Um, but what we're finding is it is getting more and more expensive. So that brings me to how do we optimize marketing? Um, marketing's role is ultimately to uh, understand the customer and ensure that the best paying customer chooses us when they are in the buying phase. And if we do a really good job, we can acquire that customer, that best paying customer, assuming that they are qualified, assuming that, of course, you know, they have the need, they have the pain or whatever it is. And of course, they can actually pay. And if they're not ready to pay now, then they'll be able to pay in the future. And uh, another huge part of our job is also to uh, to work with other functions of the business to ensure that the product gets distributed. So really what we are supposed to be focused on is it's, I mean, it's the magical trifecta. We need the right customer at the right time for a cost we can afford as quickly as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really, it, but it is also, um, but I'm at a fifth one uh, and it's, and it's, um, it is, it is to foster something that cannot be replicated by another business. Uh, so you get into brand, you get into relationship building and making the business feel like it is actually uh, a core part of a customer's life. Um, Moz has been around for, gosh, Rand is going to, Rand's going to fight me for not remembering exactly when it was, <laughs> when it was incorporated, but, uh, it's been around at least 10 years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and if, and if not at that much, yeah, somewhere around there, but there are people who are die hard Moz fans. And 
Moz holds such a big spot in, in a lot of people's hearts. And like, those are the types of experiences that you can't really replicate. Um, but I'm, I'm also going to flip it, though, and say at the same exact time, when we think about optimizing marketing, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the magical formula of like, you got to get more, pay less with less resources and somehow, you know, somehow build this like cruise ship with with sticks and toothpicks. Um, but I think I think really what optimizing marketing actually looks like is creating this experience that cannot be replicated by AI, that can't be um, uh, it can't be copied by another company. Um, anyone can spend a bunch of money on ads. Uh, but I, I, th I think really optimizing marketing looks maybe closer to maybe the things that we're not always thinking about, we're not always expecting. Um, there's also the demand gen side of this too. Like, yes, like let's optimize for CAC and let's optimize for LTV. Let's optimize like financially speaking. Um, but I think that there's so much more to the marketing story than just that. So that's what I'll say on that at least. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I, I mean, I love what you just said. I think I, it is so hard, I think, for so many marketers to be given the freedom to focus in those areas. Like companies that have done it well see the value in it, but companies that are not yet doing it well, you know, the marketers are constantly being tasked with how much revenue did you generate from that one ad or that specific campaign or, you know, that you spent half an hour on that, how much, how many leads did we get, right? And that's not necessarily where marketing has the most value. There is so much value in building brand, building experiences, building community that can't be measured in the same way. Um, and I think that's like such a challenge for marketers today where, but I think what's super interesting is how you said like the, the exponential growth that can come from optimization and improvements on the product or pricing or retention side of the business versus, you know, like give maybe your marketers a little bit more freedom to build the things that are harder to measure. Totally. And, and I think, I think too, it's only going to get harder from like a tech perspective. So it's going to get harder to measure these things. I, like we're already seeing it. Google, mm -hmm. Google analytics did a number on us all and decided, Hey, everyone's going to use GA4. Okay, great. Well, that means that there's a lot of things that we lose. There's a lot that we gain in some ways, but there's also a lot of information that we're going to lose. And I think also too, uh, browsers are are you know like they're getting harder to track. There's more and more data privacy policies that are getting deployed and implemented, uh, not just in, um, I mean, I don't know as much in the states. I feel like it's kind of the wild west over here. Uh, mm -hmm. But when it comes to Europe and UK and uh, just about everywhere else in the world, we're seeing more and more crackdowns on being able to really understand how this data is moving, which means it's just going to get it's going to get even harder to be able to report on the uh, efficiency level of certain digital channels. And then and then there's always and forever the what cannot be measured, which is affinity, how how much someone just likes you guys, <laughs> like how much mm -hmm. someone likes your product. And uh, we we can use NPS and things like that to get kind of close, but but there's so many drivers that impact how someone buys and also how they churn. And I think it's it's going to get it's just it's gonna get tougher. It already is. And I think too, post panorama, uh, you know, being YouTube friendly here, not saying the P word, <laughs> but uh post uh 
most global event, um, we are also seeing that it's it's exorbitantly more and more expensive and smaller companies are going to have to get creative and create, but creativity does not always have a measurable impact. And in fact, um, I would say it often doesn't. And it's such a long tail game. But but the short game is, of course, like, you know, you can look at performance marketing and paid acquisition and things like that. Yes, there's content marketing, SEO. AI is going to make that really weird, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's going to get harder to stand out and it's going to come down to um, competitive negotiators, positioning, and I think creativity and affinity. Like, how do you make someone feel? Yeah. And that is just really hard, I think, for some people to, you know, earn the right to focus on. Um, totally. So fight out there, marketers, like <laughs> earn your way to do to do brand work by doing a good job at demand gen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <a> approach. <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly, uh, that that was actually a strategy um, that I personally have deployed in my own previous like roles and work, which was, all right, I've, I've I have to crank out oh. these short term results so I can get buy in for the long term, more like impact, high impact stuff, things like brand uh, it, it. So there's a client that I've been working with for several years now. Uh, and very exciting for them. I, I'm pretty sure they're about to exit for like an exorbitant amount of money, which is really exciting for everyone involved. But, um, but I'm only just now getting, you know, like the thumbs up to, to, to guide them through like running more like brand type campaigns and, uh, campaigns that maybe don't have like a direct impact on, um, like, like an, an immediate instant impact on revenue. It has more of like the long term and more of like positioning and, and brand awareness building and that, you know, all the fluffy stuff that we can't measure as directly. I'm not saying we can't measure it period, but it's just not as direct and it's not always a clear one-to-one -one correlation with that in revenue. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I mean, it, it took, it took a couple of years. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and they're only just now kind of getting comfortable with like testing that type of stuff. So it, it takes time. And also I think it takes a certain type of leader. Um, I think this, I think if like the CEO understands the value of marketing, of course, but I think, the context that they were in was that they just couldn't pull the trigger quite yet on that type of thing. But now, now there's more freedom. There's more confidence. Uh, the market also that we're in appears to be expanding, which is great. So, so there's, there's levers here that we can pull, but it, it'll take time for sure. Yeah, totally. But that's the way to do it. Right. Like do the, like get those short-term results and earn the right to do the long-term um, things that, that, you know, actually are going to drive, drive more impact in the future. Totally. So um, thinking more actually on the demand generation side of things, <laughs> um, what's the role of conversion rate optimization in driving growth? This is such a good question. Okay, so it, okay, so CRO, the way that I, I view CRO is it is ultimately here to inspire efficiency, but at the end of the day, it is still a number. And conversion rate optimization is, is really the process of understanding what is the path to which we improve this number to create some efficiency in the business? Uh, conversion rate optimization, I mean, you're looking at a conversion rate. It could be from, from the moment that someone lands on my landing page to clicking my button or filling out my form, but it could also be larger conversion rates between maybe larger phases or steps in an overall buying process, such as maybe I've started a trial, but I've not become a paying customer yet, or maybe I've started a trial but I've not hit the moment of value yet. So conversion rate optimization, it can be very, very big in terms of it's looking at like very large parts of a particular cycle um, or um, or stages in a buying process, or even just like general customer experience could also be retention. 
Um, but it could also look at something extremely granular, like I am on a landing page. I need people to, I need, I need qualified high intent people to click this button and to fill out this form. How do I get people to do that? Uh, but conversion optimization ultimately is here to ensure that we are constantly uh, testing our assumptions on what is efficient and effective and also disprove a lot of myths, uh, at, at least as best as we can. And I think CRO, I, I think I think many, I think there are many out there who maybe get hung up a little bit on the numbers, you know, are not like doing what what we want them to do especially in the early stage days. And, and I think this is a double-edged sword because you often don't have the volume to really truly understand conversion rate. And at the same exact time, um, there's often too much emphasis on the number and not enough emphasis on the insights of, well, why are we seeing what we're seeing? I, I, think, I think the thing that a lot of people miss in the early days of CRO is that if we don't understand the why behind the number that we're seeing, we're gonna throw a lot of stuff at the wall not really have any context. Uh, ultimately, numbers don't tell us why. They can only show us what, how many people took the path from A to B. Um, but if we don't take a step back and say, okay, but why? Like, why did that happen? Um, without making any assumptions as best as we possibly can, then what we end up doing is we end up spinning our wheels trying to improve a number that we don't actually understand. Um, and we don't understand like the inputs of what makes that number do the number. <laughs> and, and I think also too, Conversion rates are fractions, right? Like they're, they're percentages, uh, or typically at least. And it's really easy to manipulate those numbers. So I think, I think the other thing too is we also have to be, I think we have to be very intentional and a little bit strategic about when and where we do CRO. I find, um, I find like micro CRO projects like improving the conversion of a landing page, like improving a campaign. Uh, those I think are very worthy efforts, especially when you think about like the context of marketing, um, whether you're early traction or late stage, whatever it is. But I think if we're, if we're looking at CRO from a business perspective, I think we have to be very selective about when we put a lot of effort there and what that actually looks like. Um, but I think in the context of like marketing campaigns or, um, you know, e even, in, even improving the conversion rate of traffic to trial or traffic to demo or whatever it is that that is absolutely worthy from a marketing being responsible for this particular part of the funnel. And yes, like let's certainly put some effort there, but let's be careful and not get too hung up on the number and focus far more on understanding the why. Why is this the way that it is? And also too, keeping in mind that when you have lower volumes, you're going to see some wild and crazy numbers and they're going to change like week to week, plus or minus like 40 to 60%. Um, I'm working with a company now actually, and they uh literally like week to week oh my gosh uh-oh we've we're gonna pause for a second we've got asia are you okay do you need yeah okay weird there's a fire alarm going off right now apologies if that was extremely loud <laughs> um no worries. Yeah. Just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> my uh, for context, my my husband and his brother they've got to be up to something, uh, something in the kitchen, but it's gone now. So I'm sure they've addressed it. But anyway, okay. So fun, real fun. It's gonna be great. Uh, I can't even remember where I was at. Uh, okay, yeah. So when it comes to the conversion rate, let's not get hung up on the number. Is really what I wanted to wrap up and say. Um, there's lots of insights that go into this. We need to unpack it and. It's, uh, oh, I was telling the story about a client. Uh, yeah, so week to week, it's so funny because their traffic will go up like 60% one week and then down 
40% like the next week. And then the week after that, it'll go up 20%. And then the week after that, it'll go up 80%. And so they're, but they're very, but they're early. They're really early. Um, like we're talking like 20K MRR early. And every week they're like, what's happening? And it's like, okay, this is normal. Like this is super normal. Um, the conversion rates are also doing weird things. So in the early days, it's weird, but um, it'll level out over time. And then CRO, I think becomes a little bit more of a predictable practice. Yeah, for sure. Why do you think people get so hung up on the numbers? Is there this, you know, I mean, I don't know if you see this, but maybe the, like this sort of like obsession with benchmarks of like, what happens in the industry? Like, oh, it's always a 2% conversion rate on your website. But obviously, everybody's business is so different. Like, I don't know, why do people get so hung up on the number rather than the <laughs> the why? You know, the why or just the like, even even the the collection of numbers are more important than the one, right? Like you might have a really, this is the, I mean, I might go on a, a little bit of a tangent here, but everybody has like a very different definition of what an MQL is, for example, right? There's no like standard definition. There's no standard definition for like this stage of the funnel or this stage of the funnel. But there's all these like best practices and sort of like benchmarks for what the conversion rate should be from one stage to the next. So when the definitions are different, you know, it it shouldn't actually be the numbers themselves, in my opinion, are not good, good or bad. They're just facts, right? It's just data. It's just information for you to make decisions on. And when you see something that's lower than you want it to be, you need to figure out why and see if you can improve it. But like we just have this obsession with like, oh, let's Google or let's do some research or let's find out what other companies who have been around for a hundred years get in there for their website conversion or whatever the number is we're looking at. I don't know. Is that sort of what you're seeing as well? Yeah. So I, I think that there's, I think there's many facets to this. Um, the first is I do think that there in the early stage days, I do think that there is some validity in using benchmarks as a way to guide how you're thinking about wh what investments you're making and also to give some clarity and maybe even uh, some comfort around what is like normal and also maybe what is abnormal, like what is far below like what the average is. So for example, the average, um, let's see, opt-in B2B SaaS free trial conversion rate uh, is around like the 15 to 30% mark. And if you're below the 15%, not performing maybe as efficiently as you could be. And if you're above 30%, probably way, way above, like you're, you're probably seeing like relatively healthy growth. Um, in theory, if you have good retention, then this is also true. Um, so there are some benchmarks I think that do serve a purpose, but I think on the flip side, however, part of this obsession is coming from, I think a couple of places. I think the first is it gives us something to react to. Uh, humans love a really clear thing to react to. We we love a thing to react to. It it it's it feels very. Um, uh, I find most people don't like the discomfort that comes with not knowing what to do next. And using uh, certain benchmarks and numbers feel like it's giving you a way to see like what to do next. I think in some cases this is true, especially for early stage companies. Um, but I think that there are others, however, that can be maybe more distracting. Uh, and instead of encouraging a thoughtful, strategic response, it encourages instead of very reactive, tactical, and maybe not as informed response. And this can waste a lot of money, time, and effort and energy. Um, there are certainly specifics and use cases and examples I could dig into that could illustrate like when when does this create more pain than not? But that probably a whole other podcast. Um, 
but I, but I think the other part to this too is where, where benchmarks and certain numbers can also be uh, like, they're maybe not as impactful as I feel like they are is because we don't actually understand how, how the number even, how it even exists. And I think uh, the more that you get into data analysis and the more that you get into uh, conducting like your own business intelligence, so to speak, and learning about how some of these KPIs and metrics and numbers work, I think the more you're going to find that like, it's super not, a, it's not, it's not a perfect science. There are some things that are pretty clear for us to measure, but even then, uh, these, all these KPIs and numbers are simply tools that we are using. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, they are not necessarily something that, uh, again, are like, it's it's not like in the written word, so to speak, of SaaS that it has to be this way. There's certainly examples and businesses that break these cases. Um, are some benchmarks helpful? Yes, but I think that they are they are torches, they are beacons, they are lighthouses in dark storms. Um, it is actually possible to go far above and beyond the benchmarks that you see. Uh, and I think the companies that are growing like extremely well and are are very healthy businesses they're they're blowing a lot of these benchmarks like way out of the water um so i will say they are definitely not in many cases floors um like or excuse me they're not ceilings many of these benchmarks are actually floors and um it's actually even it's possible to go even beyond them especially once you understand like exactly like what the inputs are like what actually impacts a particular number and how the number is being measured in the first place it's i think you'll find it's kind of like medicine <laughs> it's it's like or like if you if you've ever like really talked to a doctor about how they do what they do it's like well it's a it's a lot of testing actually and I, they don't always know the answer and mm-hmm. it and that shocks i think most people because they're like well shouldn't you just know you're the doctor <laughs> and you think you'd be surprised yeah, for sure. That's why they call it practicing medicine, right? So exactly. <laughs> um, I love I love what you just said, that these are um, not ceilings, they're floors. Um, and the, I think you, you touched on this earlier in the conversation about like, ultimately, what we're trying to drive is customer growth, like customer satisfaction, customer experience. And like, focusing more on improving the customer experience and making sure they're getting what they need at every stage, whether they're a customer or not, is probably going to impact those metrics than focusing on impacting the metrics individually, right? Um, so that's, uh, that, it's very interesting to, to kind of think about, like, you know, not not leaning too hard on the benchmarks, using them for, for information, but um, focusing more on the why and, and what you're delivering. Um, so now you mentioned earlier, like a lot of your focus is around overarching business growth. We're not just talking about marketing, you're talking about all the different departments. You know, what are some of the strategies that you recommend for aligning marketing sales, CS, product teams around shared growth goals? And like, how do you get people to collaborate cross functionally versus kind of everybody working on their own thing? Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting question, too. Okay, so there's really there's really two aspects of it that I that I think about it in and the first is top down versus versus the second which is more a bottoms up approach or a, a lateral approach. So I think top down. So I think it ultimately starts with founders and their executive leadership team. Uh it is it is really tough to to say culture permitting of course, culture permitting, really 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 tough to say uh hey, marketing and sales people and product people go collaborate. Um, a lot of the times that what ends up happening is everyone says, yes, we, we, we would love the collaboration, but maybe there's some, 
not necessarily even like misalignment as much as a lot of the times everyone's like, but we don't know how. In what context are we supposed to collaborate? What does that actually look like? What um, what are we supposed to work on together that would ultimately benefit the whole and help us like get closer to our goals? And, you know, of course, you know, foster good relationships with all the different department heads and, and what have you. And I find um, a lot of the times like you'll get C-suite going like, yes, collaborate, but mm-hmm. not necessarily as much guidance around, okay, but like on what and in what way and how do you expect them to do that? And so what ends up happening is everyone has a lot of really good feelings. They got the warm, fuzzy feelings about, okay, yes, like let's collaborate. That sounds great. But then um, maybe a couple of meetings happen, but then it usually like falls apart after that. And nothing, um, you know, nothing shady or anything happens. It's just uh, there wasn't enough momentum. There wasn't enough structure or operational practice that was put into place that made it really uh, clear exactly how they're supposed to collaborate in what way and what that actually looks like. Um so I think it ultimately starts with leadership, but however, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wait for leadership if you are a uh, if you are a marketing manager or director of marketing or what have you. Um, if when I think about the clients that I work with in this type of capacity, where I'm either a fractional CMO or um, like fractional whatever it is, maybe fractional head of growth, which is another which is another way that I sometimes work with companies. But whenever I think about this. Uh, for early stage companies, you know, there usually isn't any executive leadership. It's usually the founder or founders and they're kind of like, okay, everyone go do the thing. And it's like, okay, great. Uh, but when I think about how I've done this in the past and also with current clients in this capacity, at least, uh, it's sometimes, uh, it's like me taking the approach, me taking the initiative and saying, Hey, head of sales, you and I should get together maybe not every week, but at least every other week to catch up on what's going on. And the same thing is true for, um, I was actually, so there's a client that I have, uh, we like, they've been, they've been growing at a pretty breakneck pace, like two to three X every single year for the past few years. And, uh, I was actually the first person to suggest that we have a weekly or a biweekly growth meeting. And so I got me head of product and head of sales together with, with any other, um, supporting team members or cast members. So for example, product marketing joins this call, paid acquisition joins this call. And then um, uh, sometimes some of the other support, uh, sometimes they, like, we'll have a support agent attend like every now and again. And sometimes we'll have um, supporting like sales members attend as well. Um, but it's a it's a biweekly call. And our number one priority is what's going on? How can we support each other? And what are some of the KPIs or growth metrics that we need to be paying attention to? Um, the CEO used to attend. And then over time, they were like, you've got it. You guys are good. You don't need me anymore. Um, but that was me taking initiative and saying, hey, like we should get together. But here's what I did. I, I gave it structure. I gave it a process. I gave a very clear, here's how this meeting goes. And don't get me wrong. I had to remind, like I had to remind the head of sales like three different times what the meeting was for. Um, and they were always happy to attend. Like it was never like a, I don't want to go. Like, why do I have to come? It was more of like a, what am I supposed to do again? Was I supposed to do anything? Did I need to prepare anything? And I'm like, nope, you just got to show up and come with these talking points. And if, and if you don't have any talking points, that's okay. We're going to like, you, you are going to learn what we're up to, you know, cause someone's going to share. And so, but I took the initiative, I gave it structure and I gave a very clear, here's what we're doing in this meeting. Uh, I think if, I think if you want to collaborate, I think with any team member or any function, once you have clarity on, well, what is it that I think I can help them with? And what do I think that they can help me with? And then once you are clear on that, giving structure to it, because that's the first place it's going to fall apart. Um, again, like you, like 
top down, you'll get the warm, fuzzy feelings of like, yeah, let's collaborate. But then no one knows how or like on what and in what way. Uh, and then like when, like no one knows what that looks like. And so if you can provide structure, great. Um, culture permitting, of course. Otherwise, it'll be how can you get your leadership to encourage this type of collaboration and and also get really clear on like, what does that mean? Um, because it means something different to different teams and different companies and different people. Mm -hmm. Totally. Th 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 those are great tips. Um, I, and, and I think too, if like, if you're not a good structure person, if that's not your strong suit, invite somebody who is like, I, I'm, I'm not really great with uh, like, operationalizing things or a process. I love a good process. I can follow it like no other, but creating it is, is harder for me. And I had one colleague at my, the last uh, company that I worked for who was like so much better at it than I was. And I just, you know, used his templates or invited him when I needed his help and um, things like that. I, I think having that structure is, a, is the, an element of what you were just talking about. That's so, so important. Um, we used to, again, at the, the the last company I was working for, we always had committees and we used to like make fun of it, like, oh, another committee. But it was always aligned to solve a particular business challenge that we were facing in that moment. And that was coming from the top. And then the team of cross-functional participants assembled to solve that problem together. Um, and and that, that kind of like it had it coming from both ways uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and that was a structure that really worked well when we needed to collaborate cross-functionally, um, which is which is so important. And, and sometimes that's all people need. I love what you said. Like, it's not like they didn't want to come to the meeting or didn't want to have the conversation. You just had to like, somebody had to package it up um, and take that initiative, which is so important. Totally. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, what are some of the some of the common mistakes you've seen with companies that you've worked with in the past or today um, when trying to scale growth and, and, and how can, how can they avoid them? Yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so this one's a tough one because every, every business is coming to the table with different, people of different backgrounds, different skill levels, different experiences, and also different visions for how they want to work and where they want to go. And so much of, um, I, I guess, like if, if there was a way to kind of describe what me and my company does, so we're, we're kind of like acting like a virtual head of growth in a way. And there's many different aspects to that that we do. There's the research side, there's auditing growth, there's um, uh, enabling marketing product sales, whatever it is with whatever it is that they need to make better decisions. Uh, sorry, no idea what's going on. <laughs> Somebody's making grilled cheese. <laughs> Who knows? I'm, is it like, I'm curious, do you hear it? Is it super loud? It's loud enough that I thought it was coming from my house. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, okay. So, when it comes to when it comes to this type of work, uh, it there are many different aspects and ways that we are working with this company. And so, when I think about pitfalls, or when I think about things that that prevent growth, it's it's usually yes, like there's like tactical execution and prowess, of course, like there's that. Uh, in fact, I would say, I would argue that a lot of the times most companies are not executing effectively enough and 
um, there is not enough execution, which might sound count like just really contradictory, uh, e even to maybe what you might have heard me say in, in previous years, where it's like all about the strategy. But it's interesting, the more companies I work with, the more I'm kind of like, huh, we're actually, I would say maybe there's not enough execution. Don't worry, take your time. <laughs> this is what happens when we work from home, right? Like there's dogs, we've got UPS delivery people, we've got fire alarms. <laughs> it's a sorry. new era. No worries. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, not sure. Not sure what's happening. That's wild. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'll get to explore what's going on. Okay, so um, as I was saying, uh, so really what we're looking at is, yes, like there's tactical execution and how much tactical execution could we could we be doing? Could we be doing it better? Um, and I think I mentioned like this is somewhat counterintuitive or contradictory to maybe what I've said in previous years about like it's all about the strategy, but. Um, what I, I think, I think now I'm actually in a place where I would say it's probably actually not even strategy. I actually think what prevents a lot of companies from scaling up is decision-making and their ability to generate insights that enable them to make better decisions. So there's decision-making, which businesses and business leaders and internal contributors, ICs, et cetera, they're constantly making constant decisions. Like they are there's like a million decisions that they are making at any given point in time. And the way that we see companies operate that are growing and that are, um, don't get me, and don't get me wrong, it's not like it's easy. It's hard. It's extremely hard. It's very, very challenging. But what I find that they are doing that's different than others is that they are really good at making decisions with not necessarily 100% of the information, but 70% of the information they need to move forward, such as. What should we what should we charge? What should our plans be? Um, what are the new features we're going to prioritize? Why are we building these features? Which ones should we do first? Which ones are going to contribute growth? Which customers should we focus on? What channels are we going to use? Et cetera. Like there's tons and tons and tons of decisions that are being made. And what I find is the companies that do really well at growing and scaling up, they're able to they are able to just do a really good job of making a lot of decisions. Uh, ideally all in alignment with each other. And then the second part is they have a really good process for when they are stuck on a decision, they have a really good process for getting the insight that they need to make the decision. And I'm I'm at a place now where we've worked with we've I've worked with and talked to hundreds of founders at this point and their teams. Uh we have seen I just dozens of SaaS businesses of all shapes and sizes, and then also non-SaaS, so like subscription-based, internet-based. Um, and what it ultimately comes down to is how does the team work? How do they, how do they decide? What do they decide on? And then also, do they have really good systems in place to give them information for when they are stuck? Um, and also, maybe not when they're stuck, but maybe when they're hesitant or unsure and I think that this is ultimately what I see propels companies the furthest. Um, yes, there's team. Yes, there's culture. Yes, there's hiring. Uh, there's all of those things. But I, 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 maybe this is a future book one day. But but I ultimately think it comes down to decision making and then the information that they use to make the decision and how do they get it and when do they get it. Um, that's what I think it comes down to. Uh, but that's my perspective. Um, yeah. Maybe it'll change. 
it certainly has. Uh, so previously I used to fly the flag of it's all about strategy. Um, and I think that that's still very much true, but strategy even still is about decision-making. It's about making decisions. And so I, I've, I've, I think I've uh, adjusted or pivoted a little bit into that direction. Hmm. I've never thought about it in that way before, but I, I think you're totally right. And I, I just was having this conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago about different leadership styles and, you know, they're like people I've seen in my career who, uh, it doesn't take much to make a decision, right? Like there's shiny object over here, decision made, right? No information. And that's not necessarily a good place to be. And then the flip side of like, we can't, we're, we're paralyzed because we, we don't have every single potential data point that could exist in the world. So we make no decision. And there is some, like something really special that happens in the middle with, I think this is what you were saying, like people who have just enough information to test and learn, which is really what you're doing. Because honestly, like, I don't, I don't even care what decision you make, if it's the wrong one or right one, it's going to be different in a month or six months or a year anyways, right? Because the world changes and business changes and your customers change. So that, that paralysis of like not being able to make the decision, once you have that data point, you might be too late even on that decision. So being able to to confidently make those decisions and pivot and change and like that makes it, it all that to say everything you're saying makes a lot of sense to me i've just never really thought of it in that way and um you know probably something a lot of a lot of companies and and founders can be thinking about like me or, or just doing a little bit of an analysis like how do i make decisions and is it is there a way i can improve that or what information do you need Maybe it depends on how risky that decision is or whatever, right? So that's super interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I think, you know, maybe we let you um, go sort out your, your <laughs> kitchen fire. I hope, I hope that it's nothing um, and we haven't prevented you from evacuating. Um, I also noticed about halfway through our conversation and I didn't want to derail us, your little Jack Skellington in the background who I'm so <laughs> glad that he was able to join because he is my favorite. And uh, next time I'll, I'll, I'll take my Oogie Boogie who's upstairs and I'll put him in the chair right here. <laughs> Cute. Yes. I have, I actually have a Jack Skellington mug as well, like right with me. <laughs> it's that time of year, you know, October 1st to like December 31st is uh, Jack Skellington season. <laughs> in my house. Love it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I loved this conversation and I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us and all of your tips. Um, I hope everybody got a lot out of it, but thank you so much. Thank you so much again. And thank you for bearing with my fire alarm if you stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Thanks uh, everybody for listening in. I'm going to be back with another episode after the Thanksgiving break. I'll be chatting with Michael Nevsky of Visa. I will see you then.